Good morning and welcome to Crime Talk BK. We're your hosts, Joanna Perfitch and Megan Duffy. Good morning. And we are coming um, to you from, well, all over the place. Uh, I am currently in Louisiana hunkering down from COVID-19 with family. And Megan is holding down the fort in New York. Yeah, I'm still at my house. It's all right. <laughs> still here. Your newly renov- remodeled, furniture remodeled house. Furniture rearranged. I get it. I got a new TV, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about actually a New York murder for once. Um, with everything going on in the news, and gosh darn, there's a lot. I hope all of you are paying attention. Um, but we wanted to do something a little bit lighter for our show this week. Uh, yes. So, yes. Oh. Please, oh, no, just please know that we are, you know, it's on our minds, you know, all day long like it is yours. I just, uh, I wasn't prepared to talk about it on air today. That's, it's my doing. I'm from Minneapolis. It's, it hits home for me. It's a, it's a very hard thing to get your words in order. That is the only reason why. I don't want to say something off the top of my head that would be insensitive so yeah we just want to have time to really like think through the best way to talk about some of these really thorny emotional issues yes uh but in the meantime this week we're bringing you um michael alig mm-hmm. party monster going strong with me butchering last names and um of course, uh, just the awful murder of Angel Melendez. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, I swear to God that we've that maybe I covered it like before you came on as a co-host, but I definitely remember researching this murder. <laughs> well, we never did it together because I don't have any. Because I would have totally been on this with you i'm like we can do that together you can't take that from me like this is so good it's so fucked up and wonderful for our deep cut fans some of the details might be familiar but of course this time it will be covered much better yes also we did lose some old episodes so you never know (laughs) (laughs) oh my guilty is charged um yeah so megan you picked um this murder for this week um can you say a little bit about like what stood out to you and why you wanted to do this okay well this uh it's always kind of in the back of my mind but then my one of my dearest friends tall paul was like i would like to hear you do this because he's a devotee listener and i was like well yes it makes total sense it's it's got it's got everything (laughs) it's got drugs and glamour and nightlife and murder and mystery and all kinds of things and yeah so um and your friend's name is tall paul well he's married to small paul so uh, (laughs) it's that's how i when i say when i'm at their house for dinner i have to distinguish between which paul i'm asking for so it's tall paul shout out to tall paul thank you for suggesting this murder it is such a I, I hate to call any murders fun, but it's kind of a fun one um, 30 years later. Well, when you think about, yeah, this happened in 90, the murder happened in 96, but Michael Alig's, you know, his whole, flow, please, 
his whole thing started in the early 80s, right? So, come on. Get your butt down. <laughs> uh, oh, so, for our listeners, um, Megan's cat is trying to become the star of the show. Uh, yes. She's become incredibly attached since I've been home. I don't... Anyway, okay. So, yeah, but she started in the early 80s. This is like... His career in the nightlife was like 13, 14 years, right? And it's got, like, I I rabbit holed it today because I all my I researched all it today. I watched like old Geraldo Rivera episodes that Club Kids showed up on. You know who was on there with them? RuPaul and Michael Musto and um, what's her name? The Gyms, um, Suzanne Barsh and Kenny Kenny and all these all these. Semi-famous people. Well, RuPaul is quite famous now. Come on, Flo, please. Um, so the, and they did like three or four stints on Geraldo in six, like in successive years. It's crazy. This it's got everything. Yep. So that's kind of why I wanted to address this or dive into it. Um, well, I think it's a, it's a pretty excellent one. Um, so I'm just going to start off with maybe a little bit of backstory on Michael Alleg and then Megan, you can maybe talk a little bit about his club days. Oh yeah. So, Michael was raised in South Bend, Indiana, uh, which is now uh, known for another much less notorious gay man, Pete Buttigieg. Oh. Uh, who's the mayor of South Bend. I know. I felt so so bad for Pete Buttigieg that when I see, like, South Bend and then Michael Alleg is from there, I'm like, oh, that's the same place as... I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm pretty oops. sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that... Uh, Pete has not murdered anybody in a drug field rage, so it's fine. No, that would <laughs> that probably would have come out by now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Michael is just this kind of like a shy, dorky, straight A kid, um, in in kind of a small town Indiana, and he was bullied very badly for being gay and his dad wanted nothing to do with it. And uh, I mean, his parents got divorced when he was young, but he did not have a smooth sailing childhood. And actually this is what really motivated him to want to go to college in New York. Um, He wanted to be in a more liberal environment. He wanted to be somewhere where he could really be his, his, authentic self, um, like I'm sure so many queer kids who moved to New York from all over the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, he attended Fordham in the mid-80s uh, <clears throat> for architecture. Uh, and, of course, his dad was an architect, so there's, like, a little bit of trying to, you know, impress dad. Uh, but then he dropped out and switched to uh, Fashion Institute of Technology, where he met the, this is how it's described on Wikipedia, the boyfriend of artist Keith Haring, 
Oh. I don't really know who Keith Haring is, so unfortunately that's... You know those um, bright color drawings was just sort of like the the, the stick oh, drawing of the yeah. falling man? That's Keith Haring. Mm-hmm. That's Keith Haring's work. Okay, okay. He's like pop art, graffiti. Yeah. All right, yeah, I get it. So yeah. The boyfriend of Keith Haring introduced Michael to the club scene. And so Michael drops out of college and begins working at the club Danceteria as a busboy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Megan, do you want to kind of get into some of the his rise in as the king of club? Well, he's you know he's working at uh, he's working at these clubs, working at Danceteria, and I think at the time 2020 sweeping floors, busing. And whatever money he made, him and his friends would, like, make up these outlandish outfits and go out to the club because they were thinking at the time that, you know, Warhol's vision is dead. Let's create our own. So um, then he started working at a place called Zoot Clothing, which was in the East Village. I think it was probably on St. Mark Street, um, where he met... uh, he met this guy who became his sort of style mentor. Um, his last name is Rudolph. I forgot his last name. I didn't write it down. Um, and he was, I think, the owner of Danceteria. And he's the one, he, he harassed Rudolph into letting him throw parties. So, um, so he's throwing parties, like, you know, smaller parties. And he's got these you know, it's got like high octane energy and these crazy ideas. And um, so he start. that's where his first events start. And him and his friends became like this sort of magnet for the downtown scene. And then um, this popularity sort of, this underground popularity sort of grows like a fucking hurricane and takes over. And he ends up meeting Peter Gation who owns the limelight and um, within a a couple of days, he's got his own Wednesday night weekly party at limelight called disco 2000. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot between the late eighties and the early, early nineties where he, he started doing this thing, but um. Like he's now he's now like the king of night the king of underground nightlife, right? Him and his friends. Yeah. And they're all dressing extravagantly and they're making their own outfits and there's makeup and shoes and costumes and you know, they call themselves the club kids. If you ever watched nineties mm-hmm. talk shows, you know what I'm talking about. One thing that I thought was kind of funny is that he gained a reputation for these quote outlaw parties. Which mm-hmm. is basically a proto flash mob where uh, he would just like put out the word and everyone would meet at like a subway station and they're in their extravagant costumes and they have like a boom box and they just start like raving, you know, in the subway station um, until the police chase, chase them out. And then, oh, they're conveniently on the same block as the club that hired Michael to put on that party. Oh, yeah. 
He's done it at fast yeah. food restaurants. You know, they yeah. last like 30 minutes. It's, it's amazing how he could get 1,500 people, 600 people to show up to these things when this is pre-cell phone. You know, this is basically pre-internet. There's nothing, like, so it's all word of mouth and phone calls. It's, it's insane. But they he bring- just had that charisma and just kind of this, like, electric, like, energy. Mm-hmm. You know, almost mania. I would call it mania. Um, and also, too, I'd like to say that when they started this out, it was pretty much drug-free. Like, it was mm, sometimes a little bit of ecstasy, but for the most part, they were just about getting dressed up, going out dancing all night, and then going home at, you know, early dawn. Like, that was it. <laughs> and then as his notoriety grew and his antics also grew in sort of a uh, uh, fantastic display of notoriety um, and aggression. He was starting to like, uh, he'd do like traveling dance parties and shipping containers across, um, across Manhattan on the back of a truck, which uh, I'd kill to see a, a video of, cause that would be hysterical. Um, and with, you know, so now you have to, now you're escalating because you have to do better and better. So now that's when the drug use starts is you have to introduce different various hard drugs. Cocaine wasn't really a thing. It was more ketamine, heroin, um, they said rehypnol, ecstasy, and a bunch of other hard things that, you know, could kill a zoo. Um quite frankly <laughs> I'm so old um so yeah so he's his drug <clears throat> use is is escalating his friend's drug use is escalate escalating um and they're fighting hard against the wane of the club scene in the mid 90s right so it's just yeah. not just not what it was what it was people are getting bored um so I actually have a question for you Megan yes ma'am I I don't know. When did you move to New York City? 2001. Oh, I'm sure all those clubs were probably closed down by then. I was just wondering if you'd like gone to any, but I'm not sure how many actually survived the 90s. Um, the Limelight building was still standing, and it was still called the Limelight, but by the time I moved, I lived, it's on, it's on the corner of 20th and 6th, and I lived on 14th and 6th. 14th to 7th, um, <laughs> excuse me. So it turned into like this weird shopping mall for a little while. And now it's, I think, a club called Avalon. Um, I had been to whatever was left. I had met a, a number of people that were, my brother moved here in 98. So he had met a number of people in this um genre because he was 18 he wanted you know he came from the midwest and he wanted to be uh a make a name for himself and part of the scene so he met kenny kenny and rupaul and all of those kids that were still they were still out but they weren't club kidding so much as they were just finding a new uh path i guess Mm -hmm. it wasn't yeah it wasn't like heavy drug fuels i mean there were drugs of course but it wasn't like you know, you're, you're, everybody's got a hard habit of heroin anymore. It, it was a little 
for the lack of a better word, it was a little mellower when Patrick got here. Only because it got old. People were just like, this is old. Let's do something else. Because that's what fads are, right? Fads get old. Fads get tired. And uh, Disco 2000 got old and tired. Michael Alley got obnoxious and boring. <laughs> he was peeing in people's drinks. And he peed on bartenders over the balcony. Um, yeah, there's this one article by The Village Voice who is such a time capsule. You know, um, listeners, someday if you're bored and you want to really get a sense of New York life, really at any decade, yeah, go into the Village Voice archives. They've done such amazing reporting through the years. And the, so Michael Alec is on the uh, one of the top floors of the nightclub. Mm-hmm. And he pees over the balcony onto this bartender's head and she starts to cry. I mean, of course. And people start laughing at her. Yeah. Like, Michael really brought out the worst in people. Well, I think it was the drugs, too. You know, he was paying people to show up and giving them drugs, show up all dressed up. He was also paying drug dealers out of his own money to show up. Um, yeah, it's it was a he he claims he was diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder, which a brief look up. I know. I mean, you need everything over the top all the time, right? And and he said he and all his friends are that way. And I think part of that is, you know, we could we could blame that on the fact that you live in this tiny drug fueled bubble where you are you believe yourself to be the king of the nightlife. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think that you're necessarily a histrionic personality disorder, but you've made yourself into that. And you're buying your own shit, right? Yeah. And then also, um, at the height of his fame, he was going on the uh, trash talk circuit, talk uh, the trash talk talk show circuit. So he showed up on Geraldo three or four times. He showed up on Phil Donahue once. And the interesting thing, I watched these videos last night. And they're all on YouTube. If you want to Google it, you can find it yourself. It's all... Like, 75 year and older audience. Like, it's all these geriatric people. It's like, why? What is happening here? <laughs> Do they, are these They're people just getting, curious. They, they want to know what kids are up to these days. I guess. And it's like, these were filmed in New York City. So, do you have these people bust in from upstate? I don't understand. And I was like, do they pay these kids to show up? to these shows i don't i don't know it was very confusing to me i mean i don't know yeah so there is like a broad stroke of what it was like to sort of live in the alleg uh mid-90s new york party scene it wasn't it wasn't the coke field glamour of studio 54 this was insane it was insane and then when his notoriety started to wane a little bit, he created a new party called Blood Feast, which, you know, is exactly what it sounds like. He, the theme was uh, gory ideas and, and, like, dismembered body parts hanging everywhere. And it was, like, shock party. So you walk in and you're totally rolling on X or Rohypnol or whatever the hell you're on. And it's just like you're walking into a house of horrors. 
with cocktails. It's very, it's so fucked up. It doesn't, I mean, look, I, it doesn't sound, I don't want to go and dance in or atmosphere like that. When I go dancing, I want yeah. it to be like happy and like lights flashing and people smiling. And I don't want it to be like a house of horrors. Very, it's very fucked. But so, um, the sort of a flashed into his mind about where we're about to go, because that's how dark he was becoming, right? That's how deep we had to go to shock people. So we're and we're now about to uh, broach the um, murder. But we should let's talk about Angel brief just briefly. Mm-hmm. Angel was born, he was a Colombian immigrant born, uh, he moved in here in, just like Michael, in the, I think it was 1987. Um, Angel uh, moved to New York when he was in elementary school. Oh, did he? Okay, good. Yeah, his family moved up here together. Okay, good. Um, I don't know why I have 1987. So, um, I don't want to call him a drug dealer. Per se, because I don't think that's all he was, but that is all we know based on the story that I've found. Do you know anything about Angel other than they had a they had sort of a quid pro quo relationship he and Alig where so it was more than that. Uh, so there's this Village Voice article where uh, the reporter actually interviews um, Angel's older brother. No, I, yeah, I have that. I've read um, that. Yeah, so in there it says that uh, he moved from Columbia to New York. Um, it was something like 18 years before the murder. And um, his brother described him as like quiet and shy growing up. He always wanted to work in film, maybe be an actor or a director. Uh, but his life sort of fell apart a little bit when he fell into the club scene. And the relationship that, like, the way that Angel is connected to everybody is is that the owner of the limelight, um, a man named... Peter Gation. Peter Gation, yeah. Mm-hmm. He actually hired Angel. Like, Angel was on his payroll to sell drugs at the club. That is... Uh, yes, that's my understanding. Although later on, Gation was brought up on federal charges because they thought he was doing that in all his clubs and there was no proof that he was doing that to anybody. So was it him? Was it Gation paying him or was it Michael Alec that was paying him? Because Alec did admit to paying people to show up with their drugs. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. Um, it's like it's unclear if Angel was like a quote drug dealer in the way that like we would think about a drug leader on drug dealer on like Law and Order or something. Like I don't think that Angel was like selling drugs on the corner. No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think well, I think Gation hired him because there was a report that he Gation fired him, uh, Angel. But I don't Gation fired him for dealing drugs in the club. So I think he was hired, like Alec was hired to work in the club to just show up and be fabulous. And get, and Alec was paying Angel to bring in the drugs. 
is what I think is was actually happening. It's very murky. It's very murky. There's, there's oh, so much report. and then also, yeah, <laughs> like all of this is coming down the grapevine from like third, fourth hand accounts. Mm-hmm. Like this whole story almost feels apocryphal. Yeah. You know, like it's yeah. so hard to tell what was actually going on. Because, again, it's like Michael was very into, like, exaggerating his life, and he, like, needs to be the center of attention. And that was kind of like the culture that all of these kids were in where, you know, whoever had the moment could kind of say whatever they wanted. Yeah. And so exactly. it's, like, hard to exactly tell what what happened. It's Yeah, it's a little crazy. Um, I totally agree. It's so even with reading everything in the voice and watching all of these shows without a spreadsheet, it's hard to know what is real truth and what is uh, rumor. So I, I do know what's true is that uh, at this time, Michael was living in Michael Aleg was living in a very swanky apartment on the Upper West Side, two bedroom apartment paid for by Peter Gation. I wish uh, my boss would let me live would pay for my apartment. I mean, that'd be nice, you know. Apparently, I'm not that fabulous, but okay. Uh, um, so let's get into the murder, because I, I mean, like we're basically now in 1996, because this is just he's in a downward spiral. The parties are getting more depraved. People are losing interest. The drug use is incredibly heavy. Um, yeah, and at one point, didn't um, Michael's boss try to send him to rehab, and Michael only went for like two days or something? Yeah. So Angel, so Gation fires Angel in early March of '96 because Gation was getting pressure from the cops about dealing drugs in his club. Um. Then he calls in Alig and has a meeting with him. And Alig shows up like high out of his gourd. And Gation is like, look, if you don't go to rehab, I'm going to fire you. So Alig goes for like two days and then just bails because he can't handle it. And um, then Gation fires him. Right. So both Angel and Michael Alig have now been fired from the limelight. Mm hmm. In early March of 96. Now, um, there had been reports where, because, the reason I called it a quid pro quo relationship is that A-League would take Angel's drugs and then be like, oh, you can stay at my house or here's some free drinks or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, that's why I called it that. Mm-hmm. And apparently, um, A-League did owe Angel some money, and there had been reports that Aileg had stolen a huge chunk of change from Angel's stash when he was staying with Michael um, at his Upper West Side apartment. And, um, it, yeah, so hang on one second. My notes are a little crazy, because it was all today. Sorry, people. Mm. Uh, um, Well, I have a few numbers. Yeah, do it. Um, that uh, Michael Alec had stolen $2,000 from Angel. 
Um, but then when Angel, uh, oh, this is funny. As revenge, Angel severely beat Alec over the head with a platform shoe. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. As you do, girl, as you do. And then, um, yeah, and then um, at one point, Michael also stole an additional $18,000, but I believe that might have been after Angel was killed. I think that's true, too. I don't think that Angel would have left $18,000 in Alig's uh, reach if, uh, if after he found out that Michael had stolen the $2,000 already. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, their friendship is tenuous. Yeah, at best. Um, I have better frenemies. Uh, so the story goes that after a, you know after a long night of drugs, well, the rumor starts where there's a long night of drugs, and um, Michael's at home. He's he and his friends are all cracked out and Johnny reported that he had dropped Angel off at Alex's building after having dinner with him um, that night and the rumor was that Angel wanted all the money that Michael owed him and he got really fucking upset and then Michael was like just give me a little bit of coke because my boyfriend is in OD mode and coke will help him and um their other friend freeze who is named robert riggs was also in the apartment at the time and michael alig and freeze had sort of uh no let me get this right angel attacks alig freeze comes at him with uh angel with a hammer and then and and throw and that throws him off and then alig ends up smothering him in the fight and everybody's so high that they think he's just passed out. And so they bring him in, they bring him into the bathtub and they, and for a minute they don't even realize he's dead. I think they go out. Do they go out after that? Yeah. They put him on the couch for a while and they're like, Oh, he'll wake up later, whatever. And when they come back and they're like, Oh shit, he's dead. They put him in the bathtub with ice. Right. And uh, another cleaning products in the ice. There has been conflicting reports about the Drano down the throat. Um, yeah, so um, Freeze or Michael Eilig, or it's unclear, but um, there was like this rumor going around that Michael had poured um, Drano uh, down Angel's throat and then duct taped his mouth, or that maybe he put it in a syringe and shot it up with him, or who knows. Uh, but that does seem to be probably a rumor. Well, so in this interview I watched on, on American Justice, he admits to doing it, but it was after he was dead, down the throat. And then a later interview with him, Alec disputes the claim that he did it down the throat. Uh, the hyperdermic needle thing apparently was a dramatization for the movie. Um, Riggs said that he poured it down his throat. Um, Riggs admits to hitting uh, Angel over the head three times with a hammer, admits to it. Um, 
Although in one of the interviews, he specifies it was the wooden handle. Yeah. No, no, it's not as bad as you think. Yeah, no. That's, no. Okay, so this all happens. Let's just fast forward for a hot second. This all happens, and then they live with the body in the house for, like, ten days. Because they don't, they're all coked up and cracked out, and they don't really know what to do with the body. So they just keep putting more ice and more cleaning products on Angel, the poor soul. And then in some fucking moment of clarity, Ailing says that he talked Riggs uh, into getting rid of the body because every time they walk into the house now, you can smell it. Like, decomp has set in. No more, ice in the Drano isn't going to fix your problems. So, um, Alex said he would dismember the body if Riggs gave him 10 bags of heroin. So, Riggs gave him 10 bags of heroin. So, he didn't have to deal with it. So, he chopped off Angel's legs. Put those in a black plastic garbage bag. And then sealed up Angel's body into a giant cardboard box. And then the two of them took a cab... With their giant cardboard box, what the fuck, <laughs> to the Hudson River. Think? I mean, I'm sure this cab driver had seen some shit and was like, I do not want to fucking know what is in that fucking box. But And they're probably all super high. Oh, come on. So they throw the box into the river. And then they go and about their business. Away. And it floats away. It floats down river. Now, in the meantime, Michael is going around telling everybody that he killed Angel, right? Like, he can't help himself. He can't help himself. Although, to be fair, most people didn't believe him. Yes, right, because it goes back to your you, the thing you said where he was so over the top with bullshit and histrionics, right? Like, he's just, he's such a known liar and fabricator that people didn't believe him but the problem is the rumors he told so many people that it almost became a a truth in the underground right like people really stopped going to his parties now they didn't want to have anything to do with him but they didn't want to tell on him either no one wanted to be the rat right Mm um so this goes on for some time and then uh, let's see. A couple of months later, the DEA shows up at Elig's new apartment because he's no longer living in the two-bedroom paid by Gation because he got fired. So he's living in a new apartment with some girl named Brooke, who in this show also called her a dealer. But I'm like, I don't, you know, this was all produced in the 90s, so let's not even dwell on that. I don't even know what that means. Um. He thought the DAA was there about the murder of Angel, but in fact, they were there to get dirt on Peter Gation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't really mention it. He says in a later interview that the DEA knew all about it and they didn't want him to turn and either report it or admit it because they needed him to testify against Peter Gation for the drug charges in his clubs. Yeah. Which is kind of fucked up. It's like, okay, selling drugs versus killing someone. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah. again, 90s, whatever. And no, the New York, I mean, this is under Giuliani, too. You have to understand that. Mayor Giuliani, 
the killer of all New York nightlife. Um, but then also, um, so this Village Voice article that is quite good goes into heartbreaking detail about what Angel's family, especially his brother Johnny, is going through. Mm-hmm. And so Johnny like tries multiple times to file a missing persons report because they had like um like a beeper that they would use to talk back and forth. Um, but Angel never. When Angel was killed, he quit answering it, of course. Yes. But, like, he didn't have, like, a home address or any other, like, a phone number or any other information. And the cops were just like, oh, whatever, immigrant, kid, club scene, whatever, like, completely ignored him. And then, like, finally, he was able to file a police report. And then when he called to follow up on it, the cops were like, we've never heard of Angel, like... Who are you? Mm-hmm. And so Johnny kind of starts doing his own investigation. Yeah. He uh, spoke to this reporter from the Village Voice. He also went around to the clubs and uh, found out that there was a connection between Angel and um, Michael Alig. And uh, but like all of Michael's friends and Angel's friends are just acting super weird. And it kind of just didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Which is I mean, just he, so no, tragic. Yeah, he even put up posters offering a $4,000 reward for any information related to Finding Angel. That was actually one of the covers of the original Print Village Voices. Um, the article is called... Um, where did I put it? Um, murder... Oh, Jesus Christ, my notes are so fucked up. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, did, so... Did King of Club Kids Michael Alec really kill Angel Melinda's, or is it all a hoax? That's not the one I'm thinking of. It's a shorter uh, title. It has... it, the Village Voice has many articles about this, and they're the only ones reporting on it until um, the bigger papers picked it up, because yeah. they're, like, you know, everybody was like, who cares, two, who gives two fucks about the club kids in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Musto is a big part of of the club kid scene, and he had a column in the Village Voice, and he actually ran a blind item on the rumors <laughs> because Michael Alec told him in person that this had happened, and he didn't know what to make of it, so he ran a blind item hoping that it might like, you know, rattle people's cages a little bit, or. Yeah. Or or be like, you know, an angel's just not a victim. He, he you know, Michael is a killer, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, the DEA, uh, Michael becomes like a sort of a, he talks to them for weeks. And then, uh, but the NYPD hasn't even interviewed Michael. They're, they're all, everyone, all of law enforcement is focused on Peter Gation and his big drug dealing, not, not a murderer, you know, like priorities. And then, um, a body washes up on Staten Island and at first everybody's like, oh my God, it's gotta be Angel. It's gotta be Angel. It wasn't, it wasn't Angel, but because of that body washing up in a cardboard box or something, I don't know. It prompts the Staten Island Police Department to go 
oh, well, we have a body, and now they're looking for a body with uh, missing legs, and we have a torso that has missing legs, and turns out that they had had Angel's body for nine months on Staten Island. Mm-hmm. He, he, yeah, he washed up in April, and they he was originally misidentified as an Asian male. Yep. So in November of 1996, the coroner ID'd the body as Angel Melendez using his dental records. So that hit the news. And Ailey goes on the run to Tom's River, New Jersey, which, you know, (laughs) I mean... If I was going on the run for murder, I wouldn't stop in fucking New Jersey. Just saying. Yeah. I'd probably go a little bit farther than that. So he and his drug addled boyfriend checked into some hotel there. Um, and then on December 4th, the DA of uh, New York issued arrest warrants for Michael Eilig and Robert Riggs. Eilig was arrested at 3 a.m. on 12-5, so they made no wasted time picking him up and Riggs was arrested later the same day in Manhattan and a couple hours later uh, Riggs made a full confession so it was <laughs> Riggs made a full confession before Michael Ailey could even get a word out um, and that's where you find out about the hammer and the pillow and the Drano and all that stuff mm-hmm. um Ailey claims it was self-defense um, and disposed of the body in a panic 10 days later. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know. I mean, I guess it could have been, but also I'm like, dude, you like chopped up the body and... Uh. You let it sit there for 10 fucking days. You did not <laughs> panic. Oh. Did you see that article? Um, oh, yeah, because it was in the Village Voice about how um, one of the details that was going through the clubs was about how the the, um, the doorman for the apartment was commented about how badly the box and the trash bag smelled. I did see that, yeah. And I'm not sure, I don't think it's true. Like, the reporter who wrote that article actually went and, like, tried to call in to verify it, and they couldn't, so, but I thought that was kind of funny. Well, if the doorman smelled it, the cab driver smelled it, right? Yeah, for sure. Oh, I'm sure the cab driver smelled it. I'm sure everyone smelled it, but I'm not sure if they commented. I mean, I don't think you can put a body on ice in a cardboard box and drive it to the piers without it, like, bleeding through. Oh. Uh, I know. Yeah, I, I'm like I'm really just talking about the ice, the water, like the like, and and any other bodily fluids that are already flowing around. Um, prosecutors were hesitant to charge Ailig with first degree murder, um, because they were still hoping to, that he would testify against Peter Gation, who had also been arrested for allowing drugs in his nightclubs. And then they eventually offered uh, Alig and Riggs a plea deal, and they both got a sentence of 10 to 20 years 
for manslaughter. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I have a little post. He has a he did a post interview. He was in jail interview with the Guardian in 2014, right before he was right after being released. Couple yeah, things. Yeah, it on me. Okay, well, a couple things. So uh, while he was in jail, he told Michael Musso, I know why I blabbed. I must have wanted to stop me. I was spinning out of control. You know, I wanted to be punished. It was too much. Okay. If you wanted to be punished, you would have just turned yourself in. One. Um, uh, la, la, la. Yeah. For, yeah. A year before he was let out of prison, he was phoning in tweets to a friend for things like, I just look adorable in my mess hall whites and hairnet. And where are the paparazzi when you need them? <sighs> Do we feel like he's learned anything about it? No? No. Okay. Not okay. one bit. So, uh, in, yeah, right before he was released in May of 2014, which I was here for, he served 17 years. Uh, he did an interview with The Guardian. Uh, the tone of the Guardian article good. They were all like, he hasn't learned a fucking thing. He's still a dick and a maniacal asshole. Um, he's now, he's still kind of like, yeah, I did it, but I'm making excuses for it. And it's, you know, he's like, I'm sober now and I need to own it. But he's not really owning a lot of it. Like, not even trying to. No. Okay, so he's still in The Guardian. He says, first of all, the hammer thing. In the movie and the documentary, they have Freeze hitting him with the metal end of the hammer and blood going everywhere. He hit him with the wood end of the hammer, not the metal end. And there wasn't even a cut on his head when they did the autopsy. I was like, okay. There was three huge indentations in his head. If you read the ME report, they were there. Still making excuses for that. What about the Drano? Well, he was in the bathroom and he was dead already. He'd been for almost a day. Again, I'm not trying to justify it. We just Except. Put, mm-hmm. we just needed to get rid of the odor. Mm-hmm. I didn't smother him. He died of asphyxiation, but I didn't put something over his face and go like, eh. We just thought he was unconscious, which was uncommon for people in my house. So we, which was not uncommon for people in my house. And I was like, okay, so. Putting something over his face is, and he can't breathe, and he dies, is smothering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he's out now, and he's still trying to make a name for himself. Still trying to write a book. He's got a Twitter account where he's selling uh, old party flyers. From Disco 2000 and what was that other one? Blood Murder or Blood whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Selling his old flyers. Selling his old memorabilia on Twitter. I don't know who would buy it. He's got fans. He's got friends and he's got fans. Now, look, here's what I'm saying. He served his time. Right? Go out and get a real job. Fine. <laughs> totally down with that. But selling your fucking bullshit party memorabilia where you 
went down this murder spiral and then killed a drug dealer friend, held onto his body for 10 days, threw his dismembered body into a river, and then covered it up in a, yeah. in, in a very... Well, you didn't even cover it up. You told a bunch of people, and those people didn't say anything about it. So you just walked around like a murderer in New York City for months. Why should we give you a second chance? Like, honestly, I don't know. You're a huge dick. You're still yeah. living You're still living off the heyday of whatever this bullshit was. Grow the fuck up, dude. I'm done now. I'm done ranting. <laughs> I want them to do a docu-series, like a docu-drama, but like kind of like the Versace murder one, where it's like prestige television. I mean, like Netflix can do it, where it's highly produced and got really good actors. Yeah, and it's like not random one-hour special. Yeah, (laughs) I know. You know. Another side note. Peter Gation was tried and acquitted for all the drug dealing in 1998 because they didn't have all uh, that. After all that, then because they just couldn't let it go, the feds brought him up on tax evasion charges and he pled guilty to one charge in 1999 and then he was deported back to Canada. Oh, to Canada. Mm-hmm. What's up with the 90s? This is all under so against drugs. It seems this, so bizarre now. It's I know it's so bizarre, but girl, you have to understand, this is all Rudy Giuliani's doing. Did you... Well, I remember it was like, um, like D.A.R.E. Mm-hmm. I do talks at my elementary school. Oh, God. And they're like, if you do drugs, you'll die. Like, alone and sad. Your dog will run away. Yeah. Don't you remember those commercials? Like, I learned it by watching you, Dad. Because his dad is oh, like, yeah. holding, holding like a really sad-looking box of skunk weed, screaming at his kid. <laughs> yeah, I learned it from watching you, Dad. You know, part of the you know part of the drug, in my opinion, part of the drug thing is is you know, I know if you tell me absolutely not to do something, I'm gonna be like, well, why not? Now I must know. What's it all about? <laughs> You can't just blanketly tell someone not to do something without detailed explanations and 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 showing somebody. And you have to also have trust between the parties in order. If my sister said, girl, you don't want to do that. I'd be like, "Okay, I'm down with that because I trust my sister. She knows me. Some some bullshit person in authority who I don't like and don't trust is going to be like, you don't you shouldn't do that. I'm going to be like, "Okay, off I go. Snort, snort, snort. And then also, like, in college, when everyone's doing drugs, um, people were getting in trouble because you do a little bit and you realize you're not going to drop dead. And then you start to do it unsafely because you're not being careful anymore since the big bad thing that everybody warned you about didn't, like, you didn't automatically get addicted to cocaine because you did, like, one tiny bump in a bathroom. Right, your right. brain your brain didn't turn into two fried eggs in a pan. And then it's like, and then that's when things would become kind of dangerous for people because they're like, oh, I guess they lied about everything. It's like, 
No, like drugs can be quite dangerous and for some people can lead to like really horrible stuff. Um, yeah. Um, but like proceed with caution. <laughs> but it doesn't, but like you can't just say like, no, not ever. This always will be terrible because it's not true. No, anyway. just know your body in small doses. Yeah. Everything in moderation. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. And don't kill people. <laughs> don't kill people, chop them up, throw them in the river, and think you're going to get away with it. Because you're not going to. You're not going Drina to. Drina will not hide the scent of a body. No. No. It won't. Nothing will hide the smell of decomp. Just so we're clear. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's that's all for... Uh, this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Crime Talk BK. Uh, Come join us uh, next weekend. We are on uh, Radio Free Brooklyn every Saturday. New episodes um, from 11 a.m. to noon. Are we doing what I think we're doing next week? Uh, I believe so. Tall Paul's other recommendation? Yes. Okay. Tell Paul cool. you picked some winners. Yeah, I know. Yay, Tom Paul. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. Um, stay safe and sane out there. Love you guys. <laughs>